Hey there, thanks for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. What you're going to hear if you continue to listen to this episode, I'm going to be honest, isn't something happy. But if you stick with it, I think it'll bring just as much of a shock as it does faith in our shared humanity. For myself, it gave me a deeper appreciation in the selflessness of others, people who put their time and emotional fortitude in any way possible to help those who are helpless. I have a unique upbringing for the time in which I became an adult. Unique from many aspects, from family dynamics through personal oddities, but I would remiss not to mention what's likely the largest hand in that upbringing. And for the short time I've been alive, one of the main epochs. I kind of break my life into three sections. The first is my birth until about April of 2002. The second from that April through sometime around 2015. And then the one I'm presently living in. In late April or early May, I'm not quite sure of the timing, is when a seismic shift happened in my family's lives. It was my last class of the day, Spanish, had just started when an announcement came over the intercom. My sister and I were to gather our things as quickly as we could and meet our mother in the lobby. After the very brief excitement that I was no longer going to need to sit through the torture of school, my mind and concern immediately went to my grandfather, whose health at the time was in constant flux. However, it took less than three seconds into seeing the angered expression on my mother's face to know that that wasn't the case. I'll never forget the look on her face and the tone of her voice. She spoke very quickly as she skirted us out the door and said, The sheriff is at the house. We're getting kicked out. Move some stuff in the van so that you and your sister have some place to sit. When we get home, pack a bag from your rooms and wait for Nani to get you. Glossing over a series of economic woes, that come from the dot-com bubble bursting, through many other cascading and interconnecting events, we lost our house. As you could correctly assume, my life before that day wasn't one of affluence, but the time spent from that day in April until sometime in 2015 was one of constant scratching and clawing. I by no means had the worst experience, but I learned a lot about what it's like to live at the margins. Learning what it's like to have no money, no options, and having to call up a family member to wire you a few dollars, knowing they didn't have much themselves. Also, I can eat a few meals at Burger King before finishing up a semester at school. An event that at the time fueled me and haunts me to this day in those dark moments when I decompress after meeting someone else who's currently at the margins. The stress, the shame, the uncertainty. I don't take any pride in my experience but I am incredibly grateful for several seemingly insignificant moments that others lent to me that without, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Like the bureaucrat at my university's financial aid office that took my plea seriously that I wasn't going to leave the office until I found a way to stay in school and ended up staying with me past 5 p.m. to find me the $1,100 I needed so I wouldn't get kicked out. Or the four words my grandmother told me just a few months before she passed. Please stay in school. I can go on and on. I have notebooks filled with these type of moments because if it wasn't for simple, small, banal acts of kindness that happen in passing, I truly don't know where I would be. I'm going to steal and summarize something from author J.D. Vance that he said in his incredible book, Hillbilly Elegy. Vance grew up from a poor, broken family in a poor, broken community. He went to college and graduated, before eventually going to Yale Law School 
and having a very successful career. Van says that his experience, the American dream, if you will, to go from nothing into something, was always applauded everywhere he went when he explained his story. But to him, this rarity shouldn't have been a rarity. It should be, and is, what most of us strive for. Why so many still come to the U.S. for a better living for themselves and their families. But it is increasingly rarer and harder to accomplish. I have a unique upbringing for the time I came up. I experienced a foreclosure before the 08 collapse, came through the other side of it while going to university during the financial crisis, and am now living in Southern California, living a modest but very stable life. My biggest fear is that the current cohort of children in school today won't be as unique. That many more of them are currently, with many more on the way, having to hide where they live, hide what they're experiencing, or the effect it's having on them. As of a few months ago, 48% of renters in America are having trouble making rent. With lockdowns going back in place and no significant aid package or relief in sight, that number is likely to get much higher and more endemic. I threaded the needle to get to where I am now. I fear that eyehole has gotten smaller, more difficult to see, with more pitfalls in the way for people today. So, as you're likely to hear in my voice throughout this episode, I'm livid with our, quote, leadership in D.C. We're not on the verge anymore. We are literally teetering on the edge of the next Great Depression. On December 26th, which couldn't be a more twisted version of a Christmas carol, federally extended unemployment benefits will run out. Benefits that were already too small to make an impact on rent, but were likely helping people stay fed. On December 31st, the CDC eviction moratorium ends. A moratorium, that my guests will explain in much more detail, isn't automatic and people are still getting removed from their homes even with it in place. Imagine the deluge when it's removed. Everyone has bills to pay. Everyone has their own set of conundrums, if you're the tenant or the landlord. But it's the role of government to recognize those conundrums and offer solutions to make it easier, so that less people fall into the chasms of poverty. Because we know once someone lands there, it takes generations to get out, if they can. I want to encourage you to listen to this episode, and at your next convenient moment, send a tweet, email, Facebook post, or anything that suits your medium that can get the most attention. Send it to your representative in Congress and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, as well as the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, demanding that they do something for the massive amount of Americans who are about to enter homelessness. If you also want to scream into the void that is the national media, you'll likely see me standing on that same rooftop. Because while the election and virus are major stories, I think the fact that we're about to see an unprecedented rise in the homeless population is far more important than what Matthew McConaughey said on a podcast. My guest today is a lawyer with Lone Star Legal in Houston, Jonna Tremble. Right now, Jonna is spending most of her time defending tenants in eviction proceedings, trying to get them to stay in their homes. In this conversation, she shares some very human stories that her clients have experienced, including some that are incredibly heartwarming. She paints a picture for what it's like for kids trying to go to school from a laptop when their power has been shut off or their parents struggling to even ask for help. A feeling I can tell you I'm all too familiar with from my own experience. I understand from a personal perspective what's about to happen to millions. 
Let me say that again to sink it in. Millions of fellow American citizens. The stress, emotional drain, and familiar fracturing that emerges out of this. This doesn't have to happen, but it is and likely will happen. I don't plan on every episode to be on such a heavy topic with such a heavy message, but this needs our attention. I'm going to steal a concept from the episode directly preceding this one that Professor James Gelvin provided for me. It's context, consciousness, and contingency. He used it in a way to frame revolutions, but I really think it's a useful framework for a lot of things. So let's use it for right now. What's the context of today? Well, we're currently in a global pandemic. Our economy is collapsing, and we have to worry about the threat and spread of a virus. Which not only means that more people are facing homelessness because of the economic despair, but now that if they do lose their homes, they're going to have all the more difficult of a time to stay safe from the virus. Jana sent me this a few days ago, and while the study is still being peer-reviewed, it shows some drastic information. The study compiled data from evictions and found that they may accelerate COVID-19 transmission by increasing household crowding and decrease the individual's ability to social distance. The study goes on to further say that because of all of these evictions, it can translate to an estimated increase of over 400,000 more cases and over 10,000 deaths nationally because of these policies. So, if that's the context, we're in a pandemic, economic collapse, more evictions, what's the consciousness of these individuals? Well, likely very stressed, scared, and out of options. Oh yeah, and then there's that whole pandemic again going on, where all of us, even with homes, have less places to go. So what would it do to your consciousness if you have even less options? The last piece of the trilogy is contingency. What are these individuals stuck in this situation going to do? You can find all kinds of data and personal narratives that suggest it's going to result in more suffering, more acts of desperation, more conundrums. I trust that the listener now understands my frustration with those elected to help us, because that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to help us. Two quick notes on the episode. I say that 48% of Americans are on the verge of being evicted. I actually misspoke. It's 48% of renters. The numbers on foreclosures are a bit harder to guess, but I think it's actually fairly close to that. And as Jana points out, foreclosures take longer and are now starting to trickle in. The second note is I misspoke about the date of my own experience. I said it happened in 2001 when it was actually the spring of 2002. I was going off the school year when speaking, and well, this topic gets me very heated because of the abject suffering being ignored. So just keep that in mind. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your attention. I'm sending you lots of love as well as everyone else on the marble during this increasingly turbulent time. Without any further commentary from me, my conversation with John Treble from Lone Star Legal. done for the day awesome okay my colleague was just telling me that they um the dockets are done so he definitely will not be interrupting awesome well that's great to hear and we just started so uh with that thank you again for taking the time in a a courthouse which is a great setting for this i suppose uh (laughs) would you mind just so i have it could you just introduce yourself and then we can kind of go from there 
Sure, my name is Jonna Treble. I am a staff attorney with the Eviction Right to Counsel Unit at Lone Star Legal Aid. We are the largest legal aid organization in the state of Texas, and we cover, gosh, I want to say it's about 25 counties stretching from down in Galveston all the way up into East Texas. So we serve a huge service area geographically, and it covers about, I think right now, about two and a half million people are in our coverage area that qualify for our services. So that's a lot of people to help. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of people, especially your organization is fairly large. Like I, uh, so I found you all, um, I do a bit of a data science on the side and I've been following the Inviction Lab uh, and a lot of their data was coming from your, your organization. Uh, so mm -hmm. I kind of did a little chasing from there. Um, and then I read a, a bunch of Houston, I think it's a Houston Chronicle or the, the Lone Star. There's another like a typical Texas fashion star or something. Star right. Tribune, maybe. Sure. I think it's a Star Tribune. <laughs> uh, th there was a bunch of articles that cited uh, several uh, uh, different offices of Lone Star Legal. And that's how I got connected with you all. So uh, thank you again. I know that's, it's a strange thing to say that I'm excited to talk to you about evictions. Uh, but I am excited to hear more of the kind of stories and the work that you're doing. Um, and as a personal note, when I was 11 years old, uh, my family actually went through an eviction. So this is something that is not only an incredible uh, tragedy that's happening right now with just how many people are at risking eviction, but as somebody who, you know, like my first, my first portion of life was defined by an eviction. And in a lot of ways it still is. So that's something that I'm, I'm very interested to kind of understand more of what it's like now when the, you know, 2001 was when that happened to me and, you know, 2020 is a whole different world. Um, but in a lot of ways, it seems like it got worse. Um, so before yeah. we dive into that, there's something I like to do. And I think you might have noticed this um, is I like to ask a starting question, which okay. is what do you like to do that makes you happy? Um, for me, one of the things that makes me happy uh, aside from representing lower income tenants, <laughs> um, is animal rescue. I'm a huge dog lover and I had two English bulldogs of my own and it's a breed that, um, they have a lot of congenital problems. They're just a walking mess and they're so clownish and they're so sweet and funny, but they usually have a lot of things going on. And so after I had had these two of my own, when I was a young adult, uh, uh, the second of which was adopted from a rescue, um, I kind of got sucked in and fostering them. And um, so I generally have a foster dog or um, help transport them or help feed them or raise money for them. I'm really a sucker for them. And I think it's probably because animals are a lot more pure than people <laughs> and that there's no ulterior motives. Well, for bulldogs, it's usually something that's edible. That's what motivates them. But I, I do I really love to just have, you know, ridiculous number of dogs around me. <laughs> My husband is the, he keeps me sane. He's like, no, we're not going to have more right now. <laughs> so. I like that. I'm a, I'm a huge dog fan myself. Uh, I can't, I can't get enough of being around them or reading about them. Uh, I like what you said about the dogs being or animals being more pure. Um, and something I, I've thought a lot about with my dog is I really enjoy experiencing my life through her eyes. So Absolutely. like 
you know, like we went and we had like this crazy experience. We had to like move and then we had to actually move right back to our old place we moved from and seeing her get so excited to come back to our environment, (laughs) you know, just made me like, be like, ah, you know what, maybe I should just take a second and say like, we just went through hell and it's, it's okay that I'm excited to just be back here and plop on the ground and pass out, which is exactly what she did. Absolutely. Absolutely. She's like, oh, that was exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's great. Uh, that, that, that connection that you get, I think, with dogs, too, kind of helps you break the monotony of the days, you know? It really does. You know, our organization is we're all working remotely from our homes. Um, most of the judges are holding hearings, but we participate in them via Zoom most of the time. And so the dogs that I have now, I have like a pit mix who's a rescue and a boxer who's also a rescue. And the boxer, he's a real nervous dog. And now that I have been working from our home since the spring, I don't know what he's going to do if and when I go back to an office, he might have a mental breakdown. He's, he's pretty, uh, he's very happy that I'm right there. If a truck goes by or there's a leaf blower or anything, we live on the same street as an elementary school. So when the little children walk home from school, he loses his mind. I'm like, nope, it's the same kindergartners as yesterday. And they're no more dangerous today than they were yesterday. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a mess. And if we have to go back to the office, uh, he's going to need some uh, doggy Prozac or something. He's, he's definitely <laughs> have a hard time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I hope that there's going to be some, some good that comes out and stays from the, the pandemic changes. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think um, for us, we've seen different and new ways to practice law. Um, It presents a really interesting angle of access to justice, right? When everything is done via technology, um, a lot of our clients maybe don't have a tablet or smartphone so that they can participate meaningfully in their own legal proceedings and um, it's, we're getting very creative. We have been known to go out to where our clients are and sit with a folding table and some lawn chairs and pass a tablet over. And that's how we attend a hearing. And you know what? It's working. It's working. So now we're lucky that we're in a very urban area in Harris County. And um, so we have pretty ubiquitous Wi-Fi or good cell coverage, but rural counties are not so lucky. Yeah, yeah, that's... I want to come back to the access to justice point. I think that that's a really, a really great one. So just to help me with uh, the geolocation, where exactly are you located and, and where do you do your work primarily? I know Lone Star sure. is all around the state. And, and I, sure. I, was, I was contacting some of you all folks around like El Paso. So I know that there's like a lot of work, but where are you particularly? There are. So I, my unit in particular is in Houston in Harris County. And for you or if anybody else is not quite as familiar, Houston is one of the largest cities in the United States. Um, we kind of go back and forth between, well, New York is largest and then LA and then us in Chicago, we kind of take turns as to who's the largest at any given point in time and how much of the suburbs you include in there, right? So um, it's a very large city and we're it's a geographically really spread out city. Um, so it it's a very interesting place to be. Like we have everything from you know, a very super urban feel in downtown to what is very, feels very rural in Pasadena, which is sort of on the southwest side of Houston. It's still within the city limits. And, um, 
but there's a lot of uh, trailer parks and they're substantially, um, you know, they're semi-rural out there. That's a really good point to bring up about the scale of Houston. So like I travel, well, pre, pre-pandemic, I travel all over the, the country for work. And one of the things when I was in Houston, um, well, the hurricane that, that went, happened there several years ago is the first that kind of brought it up to me. Um, but then when I was working there is that, so like I'm from Chicago, actually. Mm-hmm. So the city of Chicago isn't the whole county of Cook County, right? Where like most people think like Los Angeles itself, Los Angeles is the city is actually smaller than the county of Los Angeles, right? Um, and we're in New York, you kind of get into this weird area where it's like, well, it's all the city, but they have small subsects of, you know, boroughs that are really their own sub city. Um, now, when you get to Houston, as most things in Texas, everything's bigger and different. Um, so the city itself is huge. And kind of the, I know from the, the hurricane research I was doing is kind of the urban planning they've done in it is actually just to kind of extend the sprawl of the city kind of like further and further out. So it's, it's a city that you're downtown and you feel like you're in a cosmopolitan city, which, you know, I, I didn't really have any uh, presuppositions before I went to Houston, but I was really blown away that the downtown was very cosmopolitan. Right. Um, okay. And then, you know, like you I was see over- longhorns on the front of pickup trucks. Cause you will see those, but yes. they're not all downtown. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I have a pension for rice university. So I went and checked out that area. Um, well, and then, my client was like I out in the- my mask since I'm alone, but I'm an alumni of Rice University and I like to wear my mask whenever I'm in court just um, to represent a little bit. I like that. I, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Kennedy's Rice University speech. It's actually in the first episode of this. Um, but when I was there, I noticed that like so- South Houston and things like that, that was where I had to go for some meetings was totally different. Like the, the, it was just like highways. And, and I, I asked my client to explain to me like, so wait, am I still in the, the city of Houston or am I in something else? Because most people like you're used to traveling, you know, through four or five different cities where Houston, you can drive well, because of traffic, maybe several hours and still be in the city yeah. of Houston. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're over, you know, close to where the port of Houston is versus say even just the other side of downtown, it'll feel like a dramatically different place. Yeah, definitely. And and I I experienced, it is very cool. No, I I really enjoyed that about it. And I I have some family that live just North of Houston too, and they're they're always trying to get me out there. Um, And uh, what what I want to ask is like, so with this, what I just described, right? We have a cosmopolitan downtown. We have like a a nice uh, university area with Rice and a few other, you know, universities that are there. And then we have what you said, like you have a coast, which, you know, the port of Houston, very industrial. And then you have areas Mm -hmm. that are still, you know, uh, less than affluent and probably, you know, more, uh, like you said, trailer parks or things like that, like not uh, atypical housing, right? Like not what we would uh, uh, normally uh, kind of assume with a city like Houston, right? So what unique challenges does that bring to just general, like your work? And then I want to kind of like segue that into how did that change come February you know, once the pandemic started into where we are now? Sure. Well, one thing that comes to mind really fast is in addition to being sprawling and with the actual city feeling like many different cities, many different personalities within one city, we also have a very diverse population. Um, We have, uh, thanks to the oil industry, which is, you know, this is sort of the epicenter for, for North America, 
and the oil industry, um, there are people from all over the world that live here. Also here, right, sort of adjacent to downtown is the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical center outside of New York City, probably. There are something like 25 hospitals in, a, in, a, in the space of a few square miles. Um, and in and, and the MD Anderson Cancer Center and the St. Luke's the Heart um, Institute. And so people come from all over the world also for medical treatment. Um, there are, I don't even know how to estimate the number of different languages spoken, but um, for reference, one of the things that we could talk about um, this afternoon is the CDC order to try to stop residential evictions for our firm, we actually translated that into about six different languages and then also linked to the National Low Income Housing Commission has translated it into about 17 different languages. And that's relevant because we have people speaking all of those languages right here in Harris County. Um, and, and Houston itself actually extends beyond just Harris County. Um, our project that I'm specifically working on is actually limited to Harris County. We have 16 Justice of the Peace Courts that hear eviction cases and our grant actually allows us to, what we're trying to do is that it's a civil right to counsel. So in the same, in the same way that when someone is charged with a crime, everybody's kind of familiar with the Miranda warning. Everything you say can and use be can and will be used against you in a court of law. If you cannot afford an attorney, attorney will be appointed for you. What we're working on, and this has been successfully set up in New York City, is we'd like to do something similar for people that have been sued for eviction. And the idea behind it is that the impacts long-term of eviction on both tenants and landlords, but also to the community on a larger scale are so huge and monumental and the costs are so significant that we, sh we really need to be doing this carefully and meaningfully. And right now in Harris County, less than 3% of tenants are represented by council when they're evicted. Um, which is really shocking. When you compare that with over 90% of landlords are represented by council, um, it shows that there's a real disparity in the understanding of what the laws are and what the requirements are before you evict somebody. Um, so what we're trying to do is we've got, let's see, we've got four staff attorneys that are dedicated to two of the courts, and then we're borrowing attorneys from other um, parts of our firm in different proportions of their time. And we're also working with some other eviction defense providers that are in Harris County, including um, the Houston Volunteer Lawyer Program, which uh, solicits attorneys that are, you know, in private practice and they want to help and they'll take a case just on a volunteer basis and represent that client um, at no cost. And then also there are clinics that are run at each of the three law schools that are in Houston. There's University of Houston Law Center, there's South Texas um, College of Law, and then uh, Thurgood Marshall. So all of those different entities together, we're working together to try to provide counsel to every low-income person who sued for eviction in at least four of the 16 Justice of the Peace Courts in Harris County. 
I just said a lot for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, uh, that's, um, I'm stuck on the thought of access to justice, to be honest. Um, Well, we should talk because that's part of it, right? Is there a lot of, there are a lot of, that's why we're trying to be here. Um, And it is actually very difficult to try to get people to, I, I, I was at a very busy eviction docket just yesterday and something that you'll notice if you watch some of them and, and most of them in, in Houston even actually live stream it um, on their, on their webpage. I can send you a link if you want to watch some. Um, a lot of tenants don't even show up to defend themselves. Um, and I think that there are a lot of things that go into that psychologically. Uh, people um, don't feel like they have any defense. Um, that may or may not be true. Um, people are really intimidated and, and, you know, going to a court or asking a judge for some assistance that can be very intimidating. Even lawyers can be intimidating. Um, even the free ones can be intimidating. Um, I think that there's sometimes a lot of denial, right? We see this happen a lot where people think, well, I think my landlord is bluffing, um, or they don't have anything to give, right? So there's not anything they can do about it. And until there's a constable that's on the way to execute a writ, they think, well, maybe, you know, maybe if I can pay him a little bit now, then he won't actually evict me. And um, it's really devastating. I don't know what your personal experience is, but very early on when we, our project is new, it just started in mid-August. And so it's been very gradual, we started having information for our our eviction hotline included in the citation. So when a constable goes and serves people with eviction papers, they get a phone number in there that they can call if they would like to have an attorney. And at first we thought, this is, you know, this is fantastic. The judges are letting us put this in the citation. You know, thousands of people are gonna call us. Um, And nobody was calling. And we were like, what's going on? And so we have been exploring this. There is definitely a psychological block to this isn't really happening. There's some interesting discussion of it actually in, I don't know if you've read this book, Matthew Desmond wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called Eviction. He um, was actually writing it about, I think it was in Detroit, Michigan, after the housing crisis in 2008. He followed eight different families through the eviction process and what they experienced. And then he also did, he has a fantastic amount of data that he's collected and and looked at the impacts of eviction. He's at Harvard, Um, right? Yes, he is. I I haven't read that, but I've heard of him. He's like my hero. And lately I, because I read the book right before I joined this project and I want to carry it around like, and and just beat people over the head with it um, because one of the conclusions that he comes to in the book is that poverty does not cause eviction, but eviction causes poverty, right? And, and this is one of the only ty- types of, uh, it's a contract that if you breach it, there's some punitive repercussions on you that last for a very, very long time. It makes it harder to find another place to live. A lot of landlords won't rent to you if you have an eviction on your record. Um, or they require a much greater deposit, or they'll require more months of rent up front. And it just, um, 
And then there's impacts to children's education when they get disrupted and move from, you know, where they could find affordable housing to the next. And don't even get me started on affordable housing because Houston is a place with a relatively low cost of living. And so I don't even feel like I can fairly talk about it. But, you know, that's, a, that's probably a podcast all to itself. And you should see if Matthew Desmond will talk to you. <laughs> Trying to get him to ret- return my emails. Uh, yeah. But, um, so most people in my life don't know anything about the fact that I went through an eviction. Mm-hmm. And I think the best thing for the audience is if I did talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to, even though it's something that I don't typically do. Um, I do talk about it a lot when I run into somebody else in the wild that went through it as well as a child, which I, it didn't happen until I went to college. And then I started finding people everywhere. And yeah. it's, it's so, and there's another podcast I did four years ago and uh, I interviewed this, this professor, Fran Buntman, and she's going to come back on in, in, in a few episodes. Um, but she says something to me that God, it, it, it's something that I honestly don't go a day without thinking about. And that's about how much the culture, how you can't take how we punish people and you can't take our justice system away from the culture in which it exists in and the culture in which it emerged out of. Um, and something else, uh, I'm reading a lot right now about Norman Borlaug. Are you familiar with who he is? No. Okay, so he was a scientist. Uh, he's, he coined the phrase and, and pretty much is the whole reason for the movement called the Green Revolution, which mm-hmm. he started in like the 50s, late 40s, early 50s. Um, and he's responsible for saving more lives than any other person in history. Um, from 1950 until 1980, mm-hmm. he's responsible for 1 billion, with a B, lives that he saved. Um, and what he did was he created, um, well, he created a program. He never takes credit for what the results were, which is just very humbling. But he created a program that he dubbed the Green, Re- Green Revolution, um, in which what it did was it went through, it said, look, we have all these amazing agricultural processes for selecting hybrids, for creating new generations of species, for you know, intensive agriculture and monocrops and, and a lot of the problems we have with agriculture now. But you know, we have all these new technologies why aren't we trying to, to, to feed people? Because we are, we are, people are starving. And back then it was a really big problem that there wasn't enough food for people. So he, he led um, a big movement into like dwarfing was one of the big things. So like, instead of wheat needing to grow so tall, let's have it grow half the size, but being able to carry twice the amount of the yield. So he's responsible for, you know, Mexico, India, you know, numerous countries going from food instability to food surpluses. Um, and one of the things that he said, um, which my guest Ari uh, Novi in a, a previous episode um, expounds to me, expound to me, was Borlaug grew up in really bad pro- poverty. And what he said, and his Nobel Prize speech is amazing, um, but what he says is he never forgot the pains of hunger. So that was a big driving factor for him. And as somebody who went through it, I can tell you I've never forgotten the stress of poverty. Like it affects you to the core of who you are. And like I, you can read all these studies and I'll post them with this because that's it's really interesting how much your IQ lowers when you're in poverty. So you may be the highest aptitude person possible, but just the stress of wondering where your meals are going to come from, how you're going to pay your rent, all of that lowers your IQ considerably. So and in, in how I want to connect that is, 
the, the culture in which we live, I think there's so much shame around punishment and there's yeah. so much shame around asking for help or understanding help that we, if you're in this position where you're obviously not able to pay rent, you're probably stressed by that and that's probably going to lower your IQ. And then we also have this culture around it where, you know, not showing up to a, a, a meeting or a, a hearing may be the result of just pure stress. You know, the, like the, the rationale of saying like, well, maybe if I just do a little bit, maybe if I just do a little bit. Um, okay. And what, what I'm wondering is how much of this, how much of the culture of what is actually happening is reflected in the justice and how it's being served. Like, is any of that empathy or understanding reaching the system? And, and furthermore, how much is the system currently kind of exploding? So like in the present moment, there is a CDC order that says no, no evictions. Right. But is that, is that being honored in any way? Um, There's a lot in there. Sorry. It's it's okay. Uh, The first comment I want to make is really with respect to empathy and and my experience as an eviction defense attorney is limited only to Harris County, but I will say um, the judges that are uh, presiding over these eviction hearings have an enormous amount of empathy. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of them, he told me we, we'd finished a hearing and we were talking about some of these issues. And he said, you know, and, and he's actually retiring. He, he lost his bid for reelection, so he will not be on the bench anymore. He said, you know, I don't want to evict anyone. I hate it, uh, but I, I can only follow the law and the, the landlord-tenant laws in Texas are not terribly friendly to tenants. Um, uh, when we talk about the CDC moratorium, it's not automatic. Um, landlords are still bringing eviction cases every day. Actually, in preparation to talk to you, I, I did a little bit of crunching numbers Um, The CARES Act was passed May 27th by Congress and brought with it uh, a stay to prevent evictions from moving forward in not all, but a lot of residential um, rentals. And in Harris County, since March 27th, over 13,000 evictions were filed from, yeah, that was March 27th to last Thursday. Um, from last Thursday until the end of the month, there's 1,200 that are going to be heard in the 16 Justice of the Peace Courts. And keep in mind, <laughs> next week, a lot of the judges are not having any hearings because it's the, hol- it's the Thanksgiving holiday. And so I think maybe three or four of the judges have, have dockets um, on evictions next week. So that's an alarming number of evictions, even considering that there were federal protections in place. Um, Texas does not had any statewide protections in place to slow down or discourage evictions and Houston or Harris County specifically have had none. So the way that the CDC declaration works to people have to claim it in order to enjoy protections at this moratorium and What it involves is uh, making a sworn statement and submitting that to both your landlord and to the court that's presiding over your eviction proceedings. And the five things that a person has to swear to are the the follows. The first is financial in nature. It is that 
either you make less than $99,000 a year or $198,000 for a married couple, or you re received a stimulus check this spring, or you made you had no income to report to the IRS in 2019. So when you look at those three prongs, that really includes most Americans. Okay, so we'll set aside the financial prong. The next prong is that you are making your best efforts to obtain rental assistance or um, other housing. Right now, at least for Harris County, there's no public housing that is available. Even the wait list is closed. It's several years long. So for people to say that they've tried, it's really easy to try. It's very, very hard to succeed. Um, the next thing that they have to swear is that they're making their best efforts to pay what they can within you know, the boundaries of the bills that they have. Um, that's a really hard one because a lot of the people that I talk to are saying things like, well, if I have to pick between buying food or keeping the electricity on, which one do I do? And, and that's before I even contemplate if I pay the rent. And I'm already in the hole to the landlord for four months or five months or six months. So one more month doesn't feel like that much. Um, Which is an important an important place just to pause is like human beings are not rational we're not rational by nature there's just there's 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 no there's no sense in even presupposing that right and yeah. just putting yourself in the position of wondering like well i need food i need a car they'll repossess my car much quicker than they'll take my house i'm already you know i, I mean I make a good amount of money. And if I was four months that I didn't, wasn't able to, to pay my rent, it would be hard for me to make that back up again. Right. Right. I think that's true for most people. Right. I, I actually said that to a woman. I said, if I missed a couple of my mortgage payments, I couldn't recover. And I'm a lawyer. <laughs> right. Um, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, and to add to your comment about how this stress impacts your IQ, it also impacts your executive function. Right When our lizard brain goes in, into survival mode, you don't have the higher level like processing to figure out a good plan. So you know a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm working on a case where this family lives in a mobile home, and the landlord had not filed for eviction, but what she did instead was she cut off their electricity. She thought, "I won't have to pay for an eviction if I just make it so miserable to live here that they leave voluntarily." Um, now it's not cold enough here yet that that's been a huge problem, but this family has two children and kids are still doing school at home. If you have no electricity, you can't turn the lights on. You can't, you don't have a Wi-Fi router or even just a router you can plug into. Can't charge a laptop if you have, if you have one, which I think she told me her kids had been provided devices by the school district. Um, you don't have a refrigerator that works. Their stove was electric as well, as is the microwave. So it's all these things. And she told me, well, we had enough money. We paid for the car because that way, if she throws us out, we have somewhere to stay. And uh, I'm not going to lie. I cried that night because I was thinking about her kids in the dark. Her kids are not different in age from my kids. And I was like, I'm not a better person than she is, but my kids have electricity tonight. Um, yeah, the best efforts to pay, it's a really hard one. 
um, we can talk about that some more and how people juggle that and try and figure out what to, you know, how to go forward. There's only two more things about the CDC declaration that, that somebody would have to, you know, swear to to be true about in order to be protected by the CDC moratorium. One of them is that they have had their income impacted. And that could be anything from being furloughed temporarily or losing their job entirely or just having their hours slashed. Um, one of my clients is, I love this guy. He is a junk picker. And so he goes around and, you know, collects scrap metal and, and random furniture that he refurbishes and stuff like that. And he picks junk, but there's all of the opportunities for him to sell his junk have shut down since the spring. And he's currently, he's living in his shop, which doesn't have a full bathroom or even a kitchen. He's got a hot plate. Um, and that's what I'm fighting to keep him in this workshop warehouse that's not meant for humans to live in and I'm just it's just it's it's really hard <laughs> it's just really hard that's it um, thank you very much for your work I'm gonna say this probably I'm gonna cut you off a bunch of times like thank you very much because that is like and thank you for taking the time because these are the human stories that I want to get out there because yeah. like think of this he he probably has a pickup truck if somebody, yeah. if a sheriff comes to his door and says, you have to leave, I know they're not only going to give him less than 12 hours to do so. That's not enough time yeah. to get his stuff out of there. And all of that, no. I mean, it looks like junk to us, but to him, he knows the value of it. Right. And that's his, his life. Exactly. Right. right. So he's actually a good example. We did file a CDC declaration in his case. And so it stayed through the end of the year and, um, he, but we worked on it. We worked on a plan. Like he was trying to pack up some of his stuff so that he could put it somewhere else in case the issue a writ and come to, to get him out. And, um, but it really leads, it leads to the last prong for the CDC declaration, which is if evicted, you will become homeless. And homeless is really, you know, homelessness is, it's a complicated definition, right? It's do you have a fixed place of your own that you can go to and return to every day? Now that doesn't mean you have to be sleeping, you know, on a park bench. That includes, are you having to sleep in your car or are you going back to a homeless shelter, all of which are packed right now, by the way, or are you having to double up and sleep on somebody's couch? And are you sort of couch surfing amongst different friends and family? And um, all of those, all of those definitions would include homelessness right now because you don't have your same safe place to go back to where you won't be exposed to the virus. Um, yeah. I'm going to stop for a second and give you a chance to ask questions. Yeah, no, um, that the 13, okay. So part of the reason that I reached out to the affiliate of, of Lone Star Legal in Houston mm -hmm. is because uh, Houston, St. Louis, and Kansas City are experiencing the highest numbers of eviction filings. Um, so 13,000 filed from March 27th until relatively recently. That's, that's quite a bit. Um, and I didn't For know that. That's more than some states have <laughs> in that period. Yes. So, but, you know, Harris County probably has more people than some rural states have. 
So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, certainly. But I'm not sure how much uh, many other places have the, well, now probably more, but also have the added conundrums of, of no public housing available. Right. right. So there's nowhere for people to go. I mean, at this point, you know, their, their only options are, you know, possibly other housing if they can get it with the eviction on their record. Or a lot of people are doubling up with friends and family. Um, which from a scientific standpoint is not a great option, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it, um, there's, there's something that I, I can't remember exactly, uh, who said it, but it was, um, I think it was Eric Weinstein's wife, whom her name is eluding me, but it was, uh, the virus, uh, didn't change anything. It just accelerated everything, right? So all of the trends that we saw before are definitely still there they just sped up and and you know you can go from like the you know the the larger corporations getting larger to the the conundrum of of housing kind of become coming increased um so how many of those 13,000 uh are actually getting served or, or i don't know the acted on or, or how many of those well, are actually people getting kicked out so they're definitely all getting served i would venture, you know, since only 3% end up showing up with a lawyer, I actually went looking for this information for you. Another really great place where you can get information on this is called, there's a group called January Advisors. They are actually keeping running statistics on a daily basis. And I have yet, I have not yet reached out to them to ask them what percentage of the cases um, are default judgments. So if you do not show up to the hearing when your landlord um, presents the case to the judge, the judge will issue a judgment against you and the eviction will be on your record and they can um, attach a money judgment to that and that'll follow you indefinitely. Um, what's, a, what's a money judgment? So let's say I owe $2,000 in rent. So when at the time I get evicted, the, the landlord gets two things. They get the apartment or house back. They get possession of it back. And then they can also have a debt against me for the rent that I didn't, uh, that I didn't pay. That can also include, it'll include the rent, any late fees or penalties. If the lease includes reletting fees. And also it can, if the lease includes it, include attorney's fees. So, uh, you know, not showing up is a terrible detriment to the tenants, even if they were going to move out anyway. Right. And, and to kind of go back, I'm probably going to keep bringing this up. The culture, oh. the culture in which that we have, you know, it, it would, there's a lot of shame and a lot of fear. And, you know, most of these individuals are probably from either a demographic or an upbringing or something in which they haven't had very many good, you know, instances or interactions with anyone that's in a robe or anyone that's wears a badge. No. Right. So, so no. all of that is going to be within their consciousness as to what is going in there. And I mean, like, once again, think, thinking the stress that you're in and under, you know, and, and the emotional kind of erraticism like right like most people in these situations are emotionally erratic and it's not from and there's no judgment passing onto it that's just typically how it goes so right. 
being able to get yourself to the courthouse and then walk through the door and then sit in front of a judge. These are all like each of those moments are something you have to work through when you're also wondering what you're going to do because your kid doesn't have electricity to, to, to yeah. go to school. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a terribly empathetic person and I, I have to actually hold myself back from just wanting to hug people because I feel like they maybe need a hug. Um, and in those instances, what I do is instead try to channel my energy into keeping them from getting evicted because that's a much bigger gift than even my hug. Um, it's really hard. It, it's very difficult to watch these cases. Um, I picked up one when we were last here in this court about two weeks ago. And um, so typically how this will work, if there's lawyers involved, the lawyers will ask questions. But in Justice of the Peace Court, you don't actually have to be represented by a lawyer. And so a lot of the times it is just an apartment manager or it might be the landlord themselves who owns a house or you know small apartment complex and the tenant. And the judge will actually just ask the questions and have each of the parties sworn to provide testimony. And they'll ask them, things like, you know, how, how, when was rent last paid and how much is it? And then they'll usually ask the tenant, you know, do you have any defenses to this? And really under Texas law, there are no defenses to non-payment of rent. Um, there might be if, if, they're if they're showing prediction for some other breach of the lease. Um, but it's really scary. Uh, and, and I was watching this case a couple weeks ago. It was a very young woman. She, I, she became a client. And so I got to know her a little bit. She's 24. She just had her third child. Um, and in her case, there's domestic violence. And that's what came out when the judge was asking questions of the parties. And he figured out really quickly that what was going on is that um, this woman's kid's father is is really aggressive and violent man. He's been breaking things around the apartment and causing a lot of problems. And the apartment complex wants to throw her out because he's a real problem. Um, and it was actually just really fortunate. We were there that we were here and the judge actually told her, he says, I'm going to reset this case for two weeks. I want you to go down the hallway and talk to the lawyers that are down there because I think that you need some help. And the whole time that I was watching her, because we were watching, the, the, the hearing was by Zoom, right? So we're in his courthouse, but we're watching from down the hall. And the whole time she sat with her head down, she didn't ever look up. And she, I could tell she was even afraid to, to say anything. And the, the judge even said, you know, I think this, this sounds like this is a domestic violence situation. And he asked her, you know, is that the case? And she said, no, no, it's not. And the first thing when she came back to talk to me, I said, I said, I know it's really hard to kind of get your brain around this, but if somebody is um, not hitting your person, but they're doing things to scare and intimidate you, and they're part of your family, that's domestic violence. It doesn't matter if he hit you or not. He broke your windows. He get, like kicked in your door. He tore up your bed. He scared your babies. Like that's domestic violence. And that's why the judge sent you over here. Um, it's really, really hard to watch those. And it, 
if we could clone ourselves and be in every single court and stand by for every single time a judge elicits some testimony and he's like, nope, nope, nope. I want you to talk to some lawyers and there's free ones and they're right down the hall. Um, we would, we would be everywhere if we could, but, um, but there are four of us. <laughs> Maybe we can so, find a way to legislate hugs. Yeah. I feel like things could be at least a little bit better, at least a little bit. Yeah. That's, um, that, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's a, a very raw story and, and so much of this comes down to, you know, like the stress of the situation that you're in, you know, like it, it it's not one thing that leads to you getting evicted, right? Yeah. Just like it's not one decision or one habit that one may have that leads you there. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. a multitude of things. Um, and it's a multitude of things that may or may not get you out of there. Um, right. and, and to be able to kind of be juggling whatever it is in your life that is occurring to get you to that point, And then also be able to think in this very rigid way of thinking, like, you know, in another life I was pre-law and actually it was an attorney general's son that convinced me not to go to law school. Well, uh, I will tell you, you're not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think about it occasionally. No, um, if you're interested in access to justice, we can talk again some other time, but. Yes. I like your shameless plug. I appreciated that. <laughs> Um, but what I, what I learned from, you know, some of these pre-law classes is just like how rigid you have to be in your language, right? Like the, yeah. the one that I use a lot, like I'm in tech now and something I use a lot in, in language to kind of get people to understand concepts to, to be able to build something or whatnot is always, um, a car is a car is a car. Like once you call something a car, you continue calling it a car. Don't reference it later as a Mazda Miata unless you're only going to reference it as a Mazda Miata, right? Like always be very tight with your language. So if I'm swirling with all of these problems and things that got me to this point in my life where I'm now having to face an eviction, being able to be tight with my language to understand what I'm saying outward and what is being said back to me, like in what you just said, like, no, look, like, let's take a step, you know, I hate this, this, this turn of phrase, but let's take a step back and let's look at this from a larger playing field. Like this is what is happening, right? Okay. Right. Well, because of that, let's, let's be honest and open, but see, going back to the cultural thing is I don't, it's not in our culture to be open. Right. So for me to open my life up to be able to talk about this and then to use this as a means to make sure I stay in my home. Like that's, there's a lot of cultural friction. You're, you're fighting the, you know, I've got to take care of my kids while also thinking I don't want the shame while also thinking I have no idea what the hell you just said. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, talking about the shame thing, there's another client. She's, she's one of my favorites. I just, I love her. She, um, she's a bus driver for the Houston Independent School District. And she's funny because even under really terrible circumstances, she is just all sunshine still. I mean, when she calls me up, she says, hey, doll. And she calls me names like baby cakes. And I'm like, what is happening here? And if it were anyone else, I would find it to be so condescending and so horrible, but it's her. And I just picture her pulling up and little kids hopping on her bus and they're all baby doll and baby cakes. And I'm like, oh good, I get to be one of her babies too. Um, But she and I were talking and a lot of people cry on the phone with legal aid lawyers. And she started crying. And what she told me was she, you know, because schools closed, you know, after it was, literally spring break for HISD schools closed and when you drive a school bus there's nobody to drive to school when there's closed schools and so she didn't work from that time through when 
the landlord filed for an eviction a week before school started when she'd be back to driving the bus. So close. And she is super responsible, wonderful person. She'd exhausted all of her savings to, to stay current on her rent. And she had made it to two weeks before school started and they filed. And she's like, oh. And she was talking to me and she said, you know, I was going to ask, I was going to go and talk to the preacher at my church, but I'm, I'm so embarrassed. And I don't, you know, I don't want people to know. And I have to say this just, just so that I get it sort of off my heart. We aren't, we aren't wolves. We don't live off like by ourselves. We're not made for that. We're actually made to need each other. We're communal animals. And that's something that's super independent me. I struggle with that as a person. And so I'm not going to give anybody else a hard time about it. But every single person that I talk to, I'm like, please, everybody needs help sometimes. Today, it's not me. You know, thank God. But it might be me next time. So I'm going to help you next time because I really hope that there's somebody to help me when I need it. And, and that's the biggest thing that I, like, there are people who probably go through their whole life and they're always on the receiving end of the help. And I still think that it's okay and they still deserve it. Um, but I think that there's also, it comes and goes over the course of your life, right? Of whether you can be the giver of the help or the taker of the help. And so I really... It's one of the reasons I did this job. I actually worked in oil and gas and I got laid off and I was like, what am I going to do with myself? I'm going to twiddle my thumbs and collect unemployment or I can go tell the people, Hey, you know, I've been a single mom and I was unemployed and I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. And probably my executive function went in the toilet as well. And, and now I'm not, now I'm fine. And so I'm going to pay it forward some and, and so here we are. So I really just hope that, you know, if there are people who are standing to be evicted, or also if there are people who are landlords, like if you have the ability to give some grace, do it. Because you might be the one who needs it the next time. And maybe that's my um, decidedly not Episcopalian way of looking at karma, but <laughs> that's kind of how I see the world. So I think that's a great framework. Um, you know, <clears throat> everything moves like the tides, everything comes and goes, you know, I have experienced periods in my life where I've had money. I have no money. I had no idea how I was going to eat, no idea how I was going to pay rent. Um, and now I'm doing pretty well in Southern California. And I think the only thing that you can do is you choose what you do with your time. Everything Absolutely. is going to come. Everything is going to go, you know, if you like it or not, everything in reality is temporary. If you look at it long enough, um, and I, I think something that is a, a shame of our current time that we live is a praise of individuals and not enough of a praise of the collective. Um, I think that there is wonders. I mean, we're talking to each other. We're talking across the country through silicone that was made from a collective means, but yet yeah. we, only, we only think of Steve Jobs who made the iPhone that made it most right. possible. Right. And right. Um, I wonder some, sometimes how much COVID is, is kind of increasing that as well. Um, but something that I wanted to bring call back to is, you know, this pandemic came out of nowhere. And mm -hmm. like, you know, if I continue my framework, if it accelerated a lot of things that were already happening, you know, I, I wonder how much people really thought about the person driving their children to school 
how well they were doing, right? How, how well off were they doing? Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to make any assumptions about how much they're paying, but she was doing well enough to save. That's great. That's probably, I, w- I think I can make a safe assumption, probably better than a lot of other people driving a school bus, um, yeah. which is amazing, which is either a testament to, you know, her budgeting or, or, or fortitude or, or a lot of things, right? Well, Certainly that, her character. She has a, a disabled child as well. Her son is um, blind and attends the school for the blind in Austin. So she's, she's an outstanding, just amazing, upstanding, wonderful human being. Yeah. And talk. Yet, she's still in her home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, great example of, you know, pressure turning a coal into a diamond. That's, that's for sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm not sure how many people thought about how much their school bus drivers are making and what type of life they were living. And it's those people that we, you know, I, I have this frame, like I, I'm very, I think it's, well, I know it is because of my uh, pre-law training. I think a lot more about language. Um, when I was taking all my pre-law classes, I was also taking linguistics classes. So between mm-hmm. the two of them, I think a lot about language. Um, and I don't like calling homeless people homeless. Um, I actually don't say this to them, but in my head, I call them forgottens. And the reason is, is because most of the time, that's what it is, right? They're forgotten. Um, and once you get to the level of being homeless, it's most likely you're going to stay there. And to your point about what that does to a homo sapien, when you are forgotten about, is it destroys your mental faculties. So to, to see how many people that were the person that you trusted to put your child on a bus is now in a situation where they're fighting for their home, despite the fact that they are clearly making a lot of great decisions in their personal life to be able to, t- to take care of a disabled child, um, mm-hmm. have a savings, be willing to tap into it, you know, and then reach out for help. Um, I'm really happy that she did that. But what it makes me worried about is how many other people are like that, that are just right. forgotten about. Right, right. Uh, you know, I'm, when you, when you talk about things accelerating, Uh, Where I feel we are is we're hovering right on the edge of another Great Depression. And the experience that you had as a child and that a lot of people are having right now is going to impact this whole generation that is, you know, they're, they're in a cohort with my children. My children are nine and 12. And they're going to remember a year of attending school from their dining room tables. And they're going to remember people disappearing from their class because they got evicted and they, or they became, you know, they lived in their car during that year when they figured out, you know, so-and-so doesn't keep their camera on because they don't want you to see that they're at a homeless shelter or, I mean, there's, it's just, but it's on such a scale that it's not this tiny minority of our population. It's, it's billowing. It's actually forty-eight percent of uh, Americans. Forty-eight, forty-eight percent of Americans, which is two percent shy of half, are now at risk of of being evicted. It's almost half the country. Yeah, um, and and the and the next wave is going to be the all of the evictions that follow on from mortgage foreclosures, right? So at least for Texas, foreclosing on a mortgage takes a lot longer time than evicting does, but once the mortgage holder forecloses, then the next step is whoever picks that, picks that property up at auction will then in turn evict the people who, who used to own the home. 
And those are starting to trickle in because people will go to great lengths to try and hang on to their home that they own, that they have a mortgage on, but you, you can't, you can't get blood from a stone, right? Eventually the money will run out. Or if you haven't started a job again, or, and if you're six months behind on your mortgage, what are you going to do? Um, so I think that that's probably the wave that's going to start this spring, probably. Well, it's, I, I would hope not. I think it's, um, there's something I, I think a lot about is I don't actually believe in hope. I only believe in building faith, if that makes sense. Because sure. um, I, I think hope is kind of a passive thing and, and faith you have to be actively putting into and, and building in order to, to make it there. Um, and it's, you know, Jonna, you're the first person that I've talked to that has said what I fear is that this is going to be, a, we're on the verge of a great depression. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate that my great grandmother, uh, I got to know her quite a bit before she passed away. Um, and she lived through the great depression. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually had like multiple hour talks with her about just like, what was it like? And what she always started with is we didn't have it as bad. And then she would say something and, and it would be like, you know, like literally turning everything in the house for a nickel or, you know what I mean? She would, she would just say, or, or, you know what I mean? Like uh, waiting in line for three hours for bread. Like she would just see these things that were just, or like, you know, how their father went from running a store to sweeping in the street. And, and it was like all of these things that to me were like, what was everything else like, you know? And right. she's like, that's not so bad. <laughs> right. Right. And she said it so chipper. And I was just like, what, like, what, you, what, this is, this was, this was how it was good. Yeah. Well, that is a, that's a response to trauma. For right. sure. Is and also to recognize that there were other people who for whom it was worse. Right. So she's watching her dad sweep the streets. She's like, Yeah, he's working. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which um, which goes to goes to make me think about like what well, I'm I get very frustrated with the media because I, I think this is and this is this is the story of our time. Our story of our yes. time is that half of Americans right now are at risk of losing their home and what is going to happen from that, especially right. during a time like you know, if I, I, I'm going to challenge the CDC right now and say, like, if they're really worried about this virus, shouldn't they be worried about the fact that half of America is either, either going to be shoved into their car, which is a smaller space where it's going to be the viral load is going to be larger, or they're going to be in a house with multiple people with multiple generations, which we saw from Italy didn't work out very well. So right. it's, it's, it's a frustrating and it's a failings of leadership that this is getting to this point and to the, the point of that you're making of, well, foreclosures are just starting. Is mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it's it's almost like there's two waves that are coming towards us, and we're just we, we, only people such as yourself are the ones that are really seeing it. Um, and I have to say thank you again. Um, and what what yeah. I want to ask is, I want to go back to this. I want to go back to the beginning. Um, you said that the the Miranda like law for evictions, and mm. what you said yeah. really really stuck with me, which was. Um, how much an eviction affects the tenants, landlords, and community. So I would actually like to start from a different place and I would like Mm -hmm. to start from the landlords. And I would, I want to ask you what, what, what do you mean by that? How, how does the, an eviction affect the landlord? And then I kind of want to move in concentric circles out. Sure. You know, and I'm really glad that you asked this because I am not anti landlord at all. Actually, I think 
everybody on our team and even on our firm, what we're seeing is that things are just as bad um, for landlords as well, right? So if it's a large corporate landlord, that's a special case. And a lot of those mortgages are federally backed. And so they were in forbearance during the, the time for the CARES Act, which ran from March to August. Um, and so that probably did help give a reprieve for a little while, because if they didn't have to pay the mortgage, then they weren't as concerned with collecting the rent, right? But for the smaller landlords, the you know, people who own a handful of properties um, that don't have these federally backed mortgages, um, when they don't get rent, they can't pay their bills either, right? They're in the same boat as their tenants, frankly. And the cost of the eviction is, you know, first court costs and, you know, possibly an attorney. And, you know, if there's a, if there's a tenant lawyer, they can really drag it out for a while. Um, there's any repairs, there's tenants who get really angry and they don't do this, but they damage things, you know, as, uh, you know, some vengeance. And um, then the costs of trying to relet the place. Well, guess what? We're in a pandemic. Uh, do you really want to go and walk, uh, you know, 40 people through your place to see if they want to rent it, then add to it all the people that are coming to rent the place for the, you know, let's say an X number of dollars, let's say $900 a month for a little one bedroom. Um, wouldn't be weird in Houston. Um, the same people who can afford a $900 apartment, they just got evicted from their last one for non-payment of rent. They may or may not have any more resources available than they did last month. So evicting the tenant that's already there, it's not really gonna get you a different tenant. Not, I mean, they'll have a different, it'll be a different person, but they're not really a different tenant. It's they're a you're similarly pulling, situated person. You're pulling from the same slice of the pie, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so it's just gonna keep happening. And now we're just adding more and more people to the pool of quote, bad tenants who have just been evicted. And it's, so it's not, it's not really helping landlords either. Um, the Texas Supreme Court has actually tried to do something. Just a month ago, they announced this new program. I am very excited about it, but cautiously. Um, the program is called the Eviction Diversion Program, and they're running a pilot basically in the nine counties that are clustered around the biggest cities. So Houston, Dallas, Dallas-Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin declined to participate. And I think uh, maybe Amarillo and Lubbock and there's some of the cities in West Texas that I'm not as familiar with, but the program is pretty cool. What it does is if your case is based on non-payment of rent, if the landlord and the tenant agree to cooperate, the judge put the litigation on hold for 60 days and give them time to go and apply. And this program has a state fund that came from CARES Act money and will pay up to six months of rent. So they'll go back as far as April and they'll go forward by one month. But it, but it caps at six months rent. And 
the landlord will have to document what rent they didn't collect and the tenant has to document that they're eligible in the sense that they lost income due to COVID. And generally, if you collect, if you are eligible for any public benefits, you will definitely be approved. Um, so if you get food stamps or Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security income, um, any of those uh, types of public benefits, you'll qualify. And here's the other benefit to the tenants. They get to stay in their home and the eviction record is sealed. So it doesn't stay on their record. And this is a beautiful thing. Landlords get paid, tenants stay where they're safe. Tenants don't have this eviction on their record. It sounds almost too good to be true, right? Landlords are not interested in participating and I'm floored. So this, so the, the program is a month old and the judges are actually required to talk about it and ask if they have heard of the program, if they're aware of it and if they want to participate. And I watched yesterday. We they were being in, the landlords willing to participate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tenants, tenants are all over it. They're like, that sounds great. I want to stay in my home. I want to get caught up on my rent. Um, the landlords are not interested and we can't figure out why we can't figure out, you know, is it now they're feeling really punitive, which, you know, that, that frustrates me if it's just non-payment of rent. I tend to think of evictions being in two sort of good tenants versus bad tenants. Good tenants have legitimately lost their income. They don't have a way to pay compared to the bad tenants are the ones that are, you know, selling drugs out of your rental property or they're destroying things or they're, you know, the domestic, uh, the domestic violence yeah, case we're just talking about. There's yeah. lots of things that I don't, you know, don't necessarily want to deal with on a property. I think that that's legitimate interest of landlords, but if it's just that they're having trouble paying like that, we can fix. Um, and the cost of doing so is substantially lower than running homeless shelters. Um, That's a great and, point. And great statistics in Matthew Desmond's book about that. Um, it costs a lot more to try and catch children up when they've been out of school or run, you know, sort of moved around. It costs a lot of money to run homeless shelters. It costs a lot of money to run public health programs either because of viruses or all of the mental health impacts of eviction, all of those things cost loads and loads of money. If I could give them $1,200 to pay off the rent, that's a bargain. <laughs> right. Or even, or even just like the, the, the more likelihood that you're going to be in a criminal or deemed a criminal in another way, like because you slept yeah. in the wrong area, you parked in the wrong area, or maybe you did, maybe you did do something wrong, but yeah. the, the effects that you had because of that, is, is is going to be big yeah. um, that's that sounds like a great program especially the ceiling thing because the yeah. one of the things i want to hit on is just like how if you are i didn't know that about the back rent that you mentioned about stick you know kind of like having that uh yeah. credit on you know almost like you have a credit bill out there um yeah like, it's very punitive yeah i mean trying to figure out how to be able to to pay this month's rent let alone paying back rent then okay well then i actually do get evicted now i have to try to find 
a new place to live that is either the same price I was paying or probably cheaper because everyone wants it to be cheaper, right? Yeah. And then and then you have to probably pay a bigger security deposit if that person yeah. was going to allow you to stay there. And then you have to also worry about maybe garnish your wages or figuring out how to slice the the money you are making to keep going to the back rent of a place that you're no longer living at. Like now all of a sudden we're seeing that it's not just that you are underwater and you're drowning. It's that you, right. you're, you're carrying a stone and trying to get to the surface. Yes. Yes. Now I will say at least the Texas constitution um, does not permit garnishing wages. So we've at least got that going for us in Texas. Hey there, me again. Uh, quick note. Jana moved into her car, so the audio cut out for a second. So it's going to fade back in, and the conversation will pick up. Uh, but there was a gap in the audio, and I just want to let you know. Okay, so we were at we were at the tenant place. So or we were at the the landlords. I think we got a good picture of what it's like to be a a landlord, um, and kind of the effect it comes it, it takes on them, which is really you know they have bills to pay too, and they have to figure out a, a means to probably pay more out while also not getting, you know, rent from somebody to, to get them out of there. And then they're just going to potentially be in a very similar situation with whoever right. else they'd be renting to. And I think it's very easy to say right now, given our current climate and 48% of Americans, again, being at risk of evictions, yeah. um, you're, you're more likely to get somebody like that. Um, so I want to, I want to jump past the tenants. Cause I think we, we've, we have a good picture of what we said, can you, can you yeah. help paint a picture of how the community is impacted from, from this eviction? Sure. So, and I think I've kind of mentioned this a couple times now, but Matthew Desmond's book does a really great job at looking at the, the cost to the community for various different sort of angles and ways that this impacts us. One of the really interesting ones is when people are evicted, their community, um, sort of overall community ownership where people live, which impacts security and, and sort of being involved where you live, all of that takes a hit when you have people that are more transient than permanent. Um, and the more it continues to cycle, the worse and worse it gets. So does that make sense? If you have yes. long-term tenants that stay in a place, let's say, for 10 years, people watch out for each other. They have, you know, the whole neighborhood watch effect, and they show some ownership psychologically, even if they don't legally own the place. But if you start evicting people, that erodes really fast. I had never thought of that before I read his book. Um, but it's something that you can you can measure tangibly. Um, another huge cost is what it costs when children pull in and out of school and the long-term impact on those kids when they're moved around a bunch, you know, depending on how long it takes for them to find a place where they land, where their family goes and stays, and when they're re-enrolled in school, and then how that impacts them long-term in terms of there are a lot of kids that the only place that they get reliable meals is at school. The only place that they get reliable um, health care might be at the nurse at their school. The only place that they get some of the services that, you know,
know that are part of Head Start programs or other early childhood interventions, those things only happen at school. So the minute you pull them out of there because their school is tied to where they live, all of that starts to fray. And it takes years, if ever, to recover. Yeah. And, and I can speak from my own personal experience. School was my only place of stability, you know, and, and when you are going through this type of struggle and, you know, I, I wasn't in a position where my only meals came from school, but I mean, that was the only place that I had a sense of like, okay, for eight hours, I know nothing is going to go to hell, you know? And, yeah. You don't have to worry about it while you're there. Sure. Right. And the, the secondary, you know, things you don't think about of like, well, someone is here and if I needed something, I could talk to them. Um, yeah. Even if you don't reach out to it, it's huge. I mean, I think children are the ones that, that really get this the hardest because it, it's truly not of their own doing and, and kind of they're at such a critical point in their life, how it shapes them further is, 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 sure. is quite shocking. Um, but, sure. you know, it's, it's really something else that I don't think it's thought about a lot when it comes to evictions. Um, or for foreclosures is, you know, members of your community may not know that, you know, you were in a position of not being able to pay, but maybe they did okay. know that, you know, if their dog ran out of the street, you would grab them. Or if someone was causing trouble that you would step outside, or maybe they just waved to you and, and you had a pleasant interaction. And once again, kind of going back to COVID, just yep. making everything ramp up, you know, maybe that's the only other interaction you have with somebody. And now that person is gone. Like there's so many... Right intangible effects of this that I think, you know, I'm not a same lawyer, for, but no, it's a, well, and the same thing. All the things that are true for children are also true for elderly people, right? Like when elderly people are displaced, maybe they go from where they lived for a really long time to somewhere where nobody knows them. Nobody says, Hey, I've seen Joe outside of his house for a while. Is he okay? Does he have food? You know, did he make it to his appointment? Did he fall? Like all of those things start to go out the window and the services or the, just the, the tie together between people, it starts to fray when people become more transient. And that's what eviction is. It's forcing people into becoming not permanent and to moving. Right. And, you know, the, the sense of fear that comes along with this type of event of no longer have a place of stability that you can go back to. Um, and then you have to try to build that out in another place. Like there is so much, uh, you know, emotions of loss and mourning that you're going through and then you're going to have to keep running and figuring out, uh, you know, how to solve the situation. Like it is, yeah. it is such a critical mass of issues that I feel like yeah. just the simple law of you pay your rent. And if you can't pay your rent, this is what happens is, Right. It's awfully, it, it's an awful conundrum that I think is a gross ignorance of, of the, the role of government, because as Matthew Desmond points out, and, and, and so much literature around it of, it's so much cheaper to give somebody money to stay in their house. And, 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 you know, I, I won't even go past the policy of that. Like, it's cheaper to actually do that than it would be to say, I'm going to force you out. And then all of the second order effects of what this is going to happen and how that's going to circle back through the system. And that could be circling through the system of, I no longer have a place to stay. I broke my arm. I didn't go to the hospital until it became a huge problem because I, I didn't have health insurance. So now my health insurance bill is right. higher um, and, right. and the psych or psychological effects or just the shame of having to think 
am I going to get accepted at this apartment because I have an eviction? Like that is, that's, that's stress right there that, you know, if we want to frame it again in the pandemic is going to lower your immune system and is going to make you more susceptible to things. Um, It's, it's a snake eating its own tail. And I, I appreciate the work. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, And especially framing it in the way that you did that this is this is we're at a critical mass and this could this is definitely a tipping point they can get much worse i would really love for this problem to be resolved i'm afraid i have ridiculous job security right now i would rather that not be the case i would rather be worried about they're running out of people to help that qualify for legal aid services but i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon yeah, um, it it's an unfortunate thing. You know, I, I think it's a fortunate thing that our species is so communal. I think it's unfortunate that we're becoming less and less so. Um, but it's it's also an unfortunate thing that we don't seem to really make much movement until it becomes a huge problem that we can't avoid. Um, right. So it, it, maybe those. The bless- this is a blessing in disguise in the sense that uh, it- it's becoming a large enough problem that we'll actually be forced to face it because, I mean, I experienced this in 2001. That's 19 years ago. This, the-, the issues that resulted in that is not what, you know, had to do with an economic collapse and-, and kind of a whole bunch of other set of decisions from that. But, you know, those, that didn't go away. You know what I mean? And it's not, it's, it's only ramping up. I feel up. really old. In 2001, I was a 1L. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh... I, I, the only reason I brought up the date is more just like, I, I've met a lot of people around the same time period that, that experienced yep. evictions as a, a kid. And you can yep. see in the data around then of, of the dot-com bubble, a lot of people had foreclosures and evictions. Um, it happened, obviously everyone knows about it with the, the 08 collapse. Um, but yep. the funny thing about the 08 collapse is that there wasn't as many evictions as one may suspect because it was a lot of people losing homes and it, it was a reshuffling. It was a different, and it was a different thing, right? Um, right. Where this one, we're, we're, really, we're really up against something that's very new uh, to us in modern times. But to your point, yeah. you know, around the 1930s, it wasn't necessarily, it, it's not new. It's more of just a re- recycling. Yeah. I, you know, I think it'll be interesting. I would really, the soft-hearted, uh, not jaded part of the inside of my heart wishes that there will be positive things that come out of this, that by sort of forced, by forced, you know, more extended families watching out for each other, more people having to take care of their own older people, um, and frankly, for the working generation, we need the old people so that they can um, keep all the kids that can't go to school. (laughs) I'm like, I need a granny at my house. Um, I would like to see that there are some positive impacts maybe that come out of it. I don't know. I, I think sociologists another 25, 30 years from now are going to have a heyday. Really interesting stuff is going on with us just as human beings. Um, I, I don't know that people are becoming less selfish. I, I'm afraid it's probably the opposite, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I have a lot of faith. It, it seems it may be a weird thing. I, I'm, I have a lot of faith that this might, uh, 
starkly wake a lot of people up. And I, I hope, uh, I, I appreciate your time and your voice. And I hope that, you know, more people hearing what the reality is on the ground instead of just hearing statistics is, is really going to kind of understand this. And, and really what I would like is I would like everybody to pressure their local Congress, Congress representatives yeah. and say, why aren't you doing something about this? 48% right. of Americans are about to lose their home. Why aren't you doing something about this? And I would, I right. would, because we can give, I, I love your organization. I really do. And we can give you guys all the kinds of money in the world, but it's not going to change the system. And we need this from top down. And we need to start asking, why is it that we can, we can res- absolve all this debt of large corporate donors or corporate entities, but we can't seem to find money or solutions to solve for individuals who are going through crises, which is what this is, right. is right now. Um, right. Well, you know, I, this is not to, this is not hideous, poorly laid lawyers, but if I'm working under a deadline, it's malpractice if I just quit and go home because it's a holiday weekend. I keep working. I work if it's after five, I work if it's Saturday, I work on holidays, and I really want to know why Congress isn't doing the same thing. I don't think that there should be a recess. I don't think there should be some home to your district to do nice close bed. I think that there should be, it's time to get serious and um, take some meaningful action. I completely I agree. I think that's what we should be demanding of our representatives and of our senators at the state level, federal level. A bunch of people are going to be getting new jobs soon. And if, you know, it's time to let's do it. Let's do it. Yes. There's only so much that the legal yeah. lawyers can do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and give us something to work with. Yeah. And, and, you know, Texas is a great example of this. You know, the, the state in a lot of the state as in government, in America has had a lot of times in our history taken a lead from the nonprofit or the private sector of what, where is the need? Where is the need happening? I know Texas does this a lot, you know, like, oh, wow, there's a church group or something like along those lines. That's, that's really making a lot of headway in here. Let's, let's figure out a way to kind of either solve the problem that they're facing or, you know, come up with another solution in which we can assist this, this scenario. Um, and it is, it, to me, it's a shame of this acceleration of COVID is the fact that we're seem to be relying more and more on these private institutions than we are of our public institutions, like our representatives to actually do something, you know, like, you know, March 27th was the CARES Act. Where's, where's the next one, you know, and, and I, you can, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi can be arguing over 1.5 trillion or 500 billion all they want, but I would really, I really would like anyone who's listening to start messaging your representatives and asking the question of why aren't you doing something for 48% of Americans, which if there's 320, you know, million Americans, you know, we're talking about 180 million people here that are going to 180 million people like that. That's an unfathomable amount. I can't picture 180 million, anything. This is a big problem. Huge problem. Um, and they can have a, uh, I don't know. I was about to make some sort of crass comparison. They can have a disgusting compare. They can flex their muscles all they want and play political games all that they want. In the meantime, people will be coming homeless and they will be um, trying to figure out, you know, 
how to enroll their kids in school when they reside in a car. And um, people will be falling through the cracks, and the cracks will be enormous right. in canyons because they're going to be swallowing so many people. And it will, you know, this is the major, uh, this is a major American historical event. So, you know, I think the people who are vote, being voted into office, they, you know, they either have an opportunity or, you know, to to show true leadership, or they should get out of the way for somebody who will. Yeah, I um, agree. And and to go back to my like, I don't use hope. I don't have any hope that they're going to do anything, but I have a lot of faith that if we force them to, that they will. That's not that interesting way to think of it. Well, I, you gave me a lot of interesting things that I'm definitely going to be thinking about. I really appreciate this. Um, and I, I would love to talk to you again sometime about some more of this access to justice issues. Um, kind of go some more depth in this. I, I would love welcome. to. Yeah, I would love to talk to you again in, in we'll a few talk months. About that sometime, maybe after Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Stuff in the works that I'm really excited about. I would love that. Yeah, I would love to to touch base with in you the again. Meantime, I'll go listen to all your old episodes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, thank you very much.